It's good to see each one of you again today and to come at the appointed time to sit together at the Lord's table and to hear his word expounded in truth and verity under the operating power of the Holy Spirit. As has been said already, apart from the Holy Spirit, all is vain. We'd like to open our Bibles together to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning. During this particular time of year, we're all anticipating the uh, day, uh, Christmas Day, when we are able to be together with uh, family and friends and exchange gifts and love and fellowship. And it's always such a, a heartwarming time in all of our experiences. During these times, I love to go back to the language of Luke 2 and read it together with our family each year and ponder upon its, its great worth, its great meaning. I'd like to share with you uh, upon the subject of good tidings of great joy. And that is, uh, expression is found <clears throat> in this wonderful chapter. And I'd like us to think about this in, in the context in which it appears. In verse 10 of Luke chapter 2, Luke writes, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. This is an amazing verse, and one that we would like to delve into for a little while this morning. We would like to consider the um, context around the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Incarnate means made flesh. When God would come in human form, when he would pierce the darkness of a sin-cursed earth and bring his own presence in the midst of it, he would come in uh, a way that even the devil was was not expecting uh, a, a way and manner that is um, countercultural to the way we think about royalty, the way we think about uh, dignity, the way we think about regal power that pertains to a king such as Jesus is. In opposition to the carnal aspect of the uh, expectation of Christ, Christ comes in a very unusual manner. He comes at a specific time, in a specific place, to accomplish a specific purpose. We would like to examine the anticipation of Christ's appearance as it appears in God's Word. And this chapter is rich in meaning uh, for all of us as we come to this particular season. When we think about the anticipation of Christ's appearance, we think first about the prophecies of the Old Testament. Over 300 prophecies of the coming of the Son of Man appear in the Old Testament Scripture. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them. First, I, I always go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said to the woman that he would, um, of her seed, raise up someone that would, would actually bruise the head of the serpent. That would cause um, a finality 
to the sting of death, uh, that he would uh, remove the curse of sin that was pronounced upon all men because of Adam's transgression. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the very first messianic prophecy that we find in the word of God. I'm mindful of what Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when he said, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus was the fulfillment of that early prophecy. I think about Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he said, Behold, I will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, remember, his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I think about uh, Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2, when Isaiah wrote that uh, in that day, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment and a man, a man shall be as a covert from the tempest. A man, a human being, God in human form. All of these prophecies are built around the truthfulness of Christ's first coming. In Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, 400 years before the coming of Christ, Micah referred to Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. Though she be little or small in number among the, uh, among the families of Judah, yet the Messiah would come to a place called Bethlehem, the house of bread. All of these prophecies find their fullest expression in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. You see, all that Jesus demonstrated in his human incarnate being was purposed in the Father even before time began. The anticipation of the coming of the Messiah is what Luke, especially Luke, brings out so vividly to our hearts and to our minds. In the last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God said through his prophet Malachi, Behold, the Lord shall come suddenly, to his temple. He's coming. He's coming. All the way from Genesis to Malachi, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then in your Bible, you'll have a blank page between Malachi and Matthew 1. That blank page represents 400 years of waiting. You know, the United States hasn't even reached 300 years yet. And just consider all the history of our own nation. And yet 400 long years, they're called the silent years, in which Israel had no prophet. What, what captivated the minds of the children of God was that promise that one day, one day, 
the Messiah is going to come. Then we come to the language of Luke chapter 2. This anticipation, the anticipation of Simeon in the latter portion of this chapter in verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting, waiting, anticipating, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Simeon was awaiting the hope of Israel's Messiah. And it was revealed unto him, verse 26, by the Holy Ghost, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now that's the Messiah. The one that all of the testimony of the Old Testament Scripture had promised and prophesied would come, would now come. And Simeon, by the Holy Ghost, the Lord informed him that he would not see death until he saw the hope of Israel born. In a similar way, uh, Anna, in verse 36, there was one Anna, the prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and lived in 107 years uh, and lived with a uh, husband seven years from her virginity and she was a widow about fourscore and four years 80 and four years old now you're thinking about uh, people elderly people old people they had already lived their whole life and they're waiting for this specific promise to be fulfilled would they face death without its fulfillment Simeon and Anna are in the same category. They are serving God. They are praying unto God night and day. In verse 38, And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. There was a, there was a common tie, a bond, if you will, between Anna and Simeon and those that were looking for, anticipating the coming day of redemption. Now, brothers and sisters, they were not looking for a Savior that would come and make salvation possible. They were looking for a Savior that would bring salvation that would accomplish salvation on behalf of all of those that were given him in covenant before the foundation of the world. This is glad tidings of great joy. You can understand that context, can't you, in the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Then we look at, second point, we look at the advent itself, the, the, the first coming. You see, the reason it's so crucial for you and I to rejoice in the knowledge of the first coming of Christ is that we are among those that now today anticipate the second coming. Had not the first coming been real, the second coming would not be real. You see that? So we share in this bond of faith looking to the Messiah 
as good tidings of great joy. Now let us look at the first seven verses here in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days, these are specific days, in God's providential power. This was a a time when um, the Gentile nations uh, ruled. Um, Egypt gave way to Babylon. Babylon gave way to uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persians gave way to the Greek Empire. And then Rome came along and, and took um, authority away from Greece. And uh, now it's uh, a Roman world. It came to pass in those days, the days of the Roman uh, world, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, there's much history that you can look up. Uh, I have several books at home that are very interesting to me. And I take a a magazine, uh, Archaeology Today, and uh, a monthly magazine, and, and, and they're, they're finding all kinds of things that uh, testify to the power and might and wealth of the Roman Empire. And one of the key figures in all of these findings revolves around this man. Uh, this man called Caesar Augustus, whose actual name was Octavius. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, the, the first uh, uh, ruler of Rome. He was uh, someone entrusted with a great deal of responsibility at a very young age. And he ruled, and he, he possibly could be the, the most um, uh, wise ruler that Rome ever had. He was a very wise ruler. And he came to power in AD 31 after his um, victory over a man named Mark Antony who was in uh, cahoots with a woman named Cleopatra. Maybe some of these names will kind of jog your memory. It was during that period of time that Octavius rose in power and authority. And two years after he came to authority in uh, AD 44, the Roman Senate crowned him God, Augustus, from which we get the month of August. That's where it came from. July came from Julius, Julius Caesar. See, we're, we're actually an offshoot of the Roman culture. So the Roman Senate said to Caesar Augustus, you know, now that you are emperor, the Roman Republic was forever vanquished, and now they have this one person that they deified and called Augustus. And in his day, he was recognized as the mighty king. He was recognized as the ruler of the world. But isn't it interesting that in his day, the king of kings would be born? In his day, the king that had been anticipated for centuries would now arrive. In those days... There went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, and this is a very well-documented census, that all the world should be taxed. This census enrollment was a registry that Rome kept every 14 years in order to establish family and tribal connections, and it was a poll tax. 
And by the way, the, the reasoning behind this was Caesar was looking for young men that he could uh, enlist into his army. So the best way to do that is to go throughout the Roman Empire and, and, and document the age of the children, the poll, the, the age of the children, and were they qualified to be in his army. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Much could be said there, too. He was a, a Roman uh, pawn. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. Now, this is very significant. When we talk about the advent of Christ, we need to talk about not only his parentage, but we need to talk about where he would be born. In order for him to be the Messiah, he had to be born in Bethlehem. It was, there was no other township, there was no other place that the Messiah could be born uh, other than what God said in the Old Testament. So they're going on this 70-mile trek. You've got to realize this. There's 70 miles between Nazareth and, uh, and Bethlehem, and it's through mountainous terrain. It's through very rugged terrain. It would have been especially difficult for, for Mary being so close to her time of delivery, but but remember, God's word must come to pass. So here they are. They come to their own city, which was Bethlehem, because remember, Joseph and Mary were both descendants of Judah. So they came to the city of David in the heart of Judah to be taxed, to be registered by the Romans. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. Now, espoused wife, betrothed wife. Uh, you understand this in the Jewish law even today, a betrothal in a Jewish, uh, an Orthodox Jewish family is equivalent to marriage. In other words, if that, betrothal, if that marriage ceremony doesn't take place, that person has to get a legal divorcement in Jewish culture. It's, it's the same, only they had not consummated their marriage. But she was obviously a part of his household at this time. She was espoused to him. And so it was, verse 6, while they were there, the days were accomplished. This is uh, the time appointed, <laughs> as we've already referred to in Galatians 4, verse 4. While they were there, the days were accomplished that they should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, in the Christmas story, a lot of times we we pick on the the innkeeper. If you'll notice, a lot of uh, a lot of rhetoric is around uh, uh, built around that innkeeper, and you know, and and um, and there are those that say, "Well, are you like the innkeeper? Is there room for Jesus in your home or in your heart? Are you like him?" And we cast him in that way but let me let me explain something about the innkeeper in the first century it's not like a motel six 
It, it, it's, it's not a holiday inn, um, especially in Bethlehem because it was on the route toward Jerusalem. There would be literally caravans that would come through Jerusalem. And what they have, even today, they have a semblance of this in Bethlehem. There are two-story uh, levels uh, of buildings in Bethlehem, even today. And you can park on the first level, and then you stay in the rooms on the second level. Well, in the first century, instead of driving your car or arriving on a tourist bus, uh, you're actually riding a burl, a donkey, or, or you're walking. And you would come to this place, and your animal, your beast of burden, would be on the first level, and then you would be actually sleeping on the second level. But because it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the time when millions of Jews were Jewish men were walking toward Jerusalem. All of those places would be full of people. And it is thought that Jesus uh, was born in one of these stalls that existed under the first floor. So, so uh, it's understandable uh, and reasonable for us to consider his dilemma on this occasion when Jesus would come and be born. We need to think about this in the context of our Messiah. If you, I'm going to just ask you this. What if it were your son? Would you want your son to be born in a cow's house, in a horse stall? Um, think about that. Where would you want your son to be born? Well, maybe um, in a hospital. <laughs> uh, maybe in a clean, sanitary place. Maybe in a place of political power like Rome. Maybe in a, a place of religious significance like the temple. You and I would choose a totally different place for Christ to be born. But God had a purpose in this. And I believe that that purpose is so often missed in the story of Christmas. You see, in the advent of Jesus Christ, we find that he was identifying with the people that he came to save. Remember when Moses was in the wilderness prior to uh, the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. When God appeared first to Moses, did he appear in a great uh, cedar tree? Did he appear in a, a great beautiful oak or a magnificent pine? He appeared to him in a bramble bush, a thorn bush. Does that make sense? Not to the natural mind. Not to the natural mind. But God was speaking to Moses out of the bramble bush, out of the burning bush, if you will, signifying that he would identify with the lowly. He would identify with the downtrodden. He would identify with those that were considered uh, expendable. You see, God is about identity. 
He's, he's identifying with the needs of those that he comes to deliver. So Jesus, it is said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Ye have known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that he was rich but became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. He was identifying with the people that he came to save. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the kenosis, the, the emptying of Christ's former glory to take upon himself the form of a servant, he did that in order to identify with the people that he came into the world to save. This was descriptive of his advent. Now let's look at this announcement. Third point. In verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, brothers and sisters, you need to realize that the shepherds in the first century were the lowest rung of the social ladder. You, you have to, I don't know if you've ever been around sheep. I, I had the privilege of working um, for a short time uh, on a sheep ranch. Of course, what I was doing was hauling the hay. But I got to see how sheep are sheared. And, and I got to handle them. I got, I, I got to actually put them in the pens and in the trailers, you know, a boy of 14. And the very first thing I learned about sheep is they stink. Now, I'm not trying to be impolite, but I'm just telling you, if you ever work around sheep, you get that sheep uh, oil, uh, wool oil on your clothes, uh, it takes several washings to get that out. They smell bad. And because of that, the shepherds uh, would have this uh, <clears throat> cologne everywhere they went. And when people would uh, uh, sense their presence, they would get away from them. Because it really does smell very, very bad. And uh, they were uh, isolated. They were separated from what we would call civil uh, society. They were actually even prevented from coming into the temple. Did you know that? They were not allowed to go into the temple. Uh, because of their smell and their attire. They were considered to be on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But who did God announce the birth of the Messiah to first? First on the agenda of God were these lowly shepherds. This announcement is a powerful reminder of who Christ came to save of what Christ came to accomplish. The shepherds were first told, though they were the lowest in the social uh, uh, community, they were watching over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord. I believe that this angel was Gabriel. Some people say, well, it's Michael. Well, it's okay. It's one of them. It's Michael or uh, Gabriel. The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine? 
the appearance of this great angel in their midst, you can uh, imagine their fear that night. But the angel said unto them, Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? What, what will even today dispel our fear? We're living in a culture of fear today. Some people, I, I see people walking by themselves outside on the road with a mask on. What are they afraid of? People in their, in, in their vehicles, they won't, even, they, don't, they won't even talk to you. They won't even roll down the window to talk to you. They're afraid of you. We're living in a culture of fear. And in this day, there was fear in the lives of these shepherds because of this sighting. And he says, behold, I'm bringing you something that no one else can bring. I'm bringing you something that no one else can provide. I'm bringing you good tidings of great things. How great? Greater than your fear. Greater than your isolation. Greater than your sin. Greater than your mistakes. Greater than your faults and your failures. I'm bringing something greater than that. And this is not just going to be for the Jewish race. This is going to be something for all peoples. For Jew and Gentile. Are you glad that, that we're in there, Brother Don? Aren't you glad that it, it says that? that? That we're included in the recipiency of this great, great news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, his birth city, a Savior, which is the Christ, which is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, this is the first, this is the first use of the word Savior in the New Testament. He is, he is referred to as the Savior, the one who came to save. Again, I'm going to emphasize this for your benefit. He's not coming into the world to make it possible to be saved. Uh, to make it available to be saved. He's coming to save. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. Don't sit there this morning and try to convince me. That he came to make salvation available for the whole human race. Or he came to, to make it possible for the whole human race to be saved. And he's kind of waiting at the end of the age to find out who's going to make it in the end. Don't try to convince me of that uh, from the word of God. Because it's not in the word of God. Jesus Christ knew exactly who he came to save. And when he hung upon that cross, he knew exactly whose sins he came to bear. And when Jesus comes the second time without sin unto salvation, he's going to come and gather everyone for whom he gave himself for upon the cross. Hallelujah. I'm telling you that that's 
good tidings of great joy that eclipses anything that we can go through in this life. Any sorrow. Brother Nathan brought it to our attention a moment ago that a man that is born of woman is full of uh, but a few days and a full of trouble. That's, isn't that the truth? Hasn't that been all of our experience? There's trouble on every hand, sometimes with a capital T. But this morning, we've got a message that's greater than that trouble. And that message is the message of Jesus Christ. In this announcement, in, in this wonderful announcement to the shepherds, Gabriel appears, and, and not only him, but all of a sudden, there, there's a heavenly army uh, a choir as it were now listen to this he says in verse 12 this shall be a sign unto you you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes now swaddling clothes is uh, 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 strips of cloth approximately four inches wide that they would actually wrap a, a child in not only to keep him warm but also to prevent him from injury from his uh, fingernails you know, babies have that tendency. They have real sharp claws when they're, you know, it doesn't take very long for those claws to come out. And, uh, and they would prevent uh, the, the child from injuring his eye or, 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 or his face. So they would bind that child uh, in this uh, uh, type of cloth. And they still do that, by the way. They still do those type of things in many, many parts of our world. It's interesting to me to see a baby wrapped in these kind of swaddling clothes. Did you know that swaddling clothes were often used to clean animals? And yet here's our Savior, not clothed in the fine raiment of silk and gold-threaded cloth. You you see, we would think uh, he would be worthy of that. But he's wrapped in the, the most menial material that was available at that time. To me, this is significant. And, and the next verse, you know, he, he's lying in a manger. You, see, when I think about this, I, I think about this as a picture, a, a prophetic uh, picture of what Christ would accomplish upon the cross. Because here you have a wooden cradle that is put together with nails. And you have inside that cradle a baby that is wrapped in uh, these uh, swaddling cloths, these strips of cloth. Well, that's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus was hung upon the cross and nailed to that cross. And when they took him down from that cross, the Bible strictly says that he was wrapped in cloth. He was, um, he was taken down by Nicodemus and uh, Joseph, his cousin, of uh, Arimathea, and, and he was wrapped, uh, which was customary in the bearing of dead people. So here's a, a, a mute illustration of what Christ came to accomplish by this scene in his advent. This announcement is tremendous to my soul. Because, you know, the, the magi, the magi, 
were guided by a star, right? Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 2. They, they were guided by this star. We've seen his star in the east. Now, we can, we can kind of comprehend that. We can kind of uh, relate to that. But what guided the shepherds? The word of promise. The word of God. They believed what the angel said, which was the word of God. And they acted upon that faith. They acted upon that belief. And they diligently searched for him. Notice what it says. And suddenly there were a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. See, I, I've told you uh, before in our studies of Revelation that nowhere does it say that angels sang, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up uh, just a little bit. That's the only time Pastor Nathan has ever disagreed with me, even publicly, uh, because, because I'm going to have to admit something here. How could you see the glory of God? How, how could you see the accomplishment of His redemption? How could you see the magnificence of the salvation that was about to be wrought and not want to sing? Praising. That's right. How, how could you look at that and not want to? I mean, if you can stand, now you men, if you can stand under a hot, a soothing shower at the end of a hard working day and you just kind of get a little uh, a hymn in your mind and you start singing all of a sudden your wife comes and knocks on the door and says oh, hush in there you're too, you're too loud in there if you can sing uh, under the comforting hue of a shower how much more would you sing if you saw the fulfillment of all of these promises being accomplished at one time in one place by one little child? How could you not sing? So I'm going to back up on I'm going to back up on what I said. This is a heavenly anthem of praise. And listen to what their praise is. Glory to God in the highest on earth peace and goodwill toward man. I want you to know that the praise that was promised and the goodwill that was proclaimed can only be produced when men give glory to God in the highest. Can I get a witness? You see, earthly peace can only be had through harmony with heavenly glory. Here these little shepherds are no longer afraid. They're rejoicing. They're praising God. They're glorifying God. And they said, we're, we're going to go find this little child. And they hoof it over to the village of uh, Bethlehem. And uh, verse 16, And they came with haste, and they found Mary. Just like God's word said, they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child, not just any child, but this child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. You see, here, I believe, is evangelism. See, evangelism, brothers and sisters, is just telling other people that you've seen Christ, that, that you've seen the answer. The, the fulfillment of God's promise to poor and unworthy sinners. This is a tremendous announcement. And I believe that 
these are God's uh, first evangelists right here. They're the lowly shepherds. Now the last point that I want to dwell upon with you this morning, we've looked at the anticipation and the advent and the announcement, but I want to think about the advantage, the advantage of the incarnation of Christ. Why is this good tidings of great joy? As we mentioned a moment ago, not only that all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Christ, but also that God was identifying with his people. He pierced the darkness of a cold and sinful world and sent his son to be the light of that world. Do you realize in Luke chapter 7 verse 34, do you realize that Jesus is called the friend of sinners? Do you realize that? The friend of sinners. We wouldn't have written that. We, we wouldn't have thought that. Not on our own. Not, not by nature. We wouldn't think that he'd have anything to do with sinners. But yet, Luke records for us in 734, he's the friend of sinners. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, he says that this man receives sinners. This man receives sinners. I'm mindful of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 when he said uh, that uh, this man saved sinners. He said this is a true and faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. When Jesus hung upon the cross, remember his last statement in John chapter 19, verse 30. He said, it is finished. Do you remember that? He, he didn't say, well, I've done all I can do. Now it's up to you. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? Aren't you glad he didn't hang on the cross and say, well, I've come halfway. Now you come the other half. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? But brothers and sisters, when he hung upon the cross, he looked up in the glory and said, Father, it is is finished and by the way tetelestai that word means paid in full there's nothing else for you to pay friend there's nothing else that you could pay in order to gain eternal life jesus christ came into the world to save sinners and i'm so glad and if you're not one of those sinners this morning it's not good news to you it's not uh, good tidings of great joy to you but if you are a sinner and you know yourself to be a sinner there is a great tiding of great joy in your heart when you think about christ uh, paying the sin debt that you rightfully owed so that you could receive eternal life and eternal righteousness through him hallelujah I want you to think about this in the context of the gospel story. This is the gospel, friends. This is the good news of the gospel. Turn your Bible very quickly. Uh, turn your Bible very quickly with me to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13. Listen to... This apostolic message. He, you know, uh, here the Apostle Paul is preaching in Antioch in Pisidia. And he's, he's, he's going through the incarnation. You know, he's, he's going through the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 30, are you with me in Acts chapter 13? 
but God raised him from the dead. Now, friends, I want you to uh, understand something. Um, when you study um, Mahatma Gandhi, when you study Hinduism, uh, they don't talk about people being raised from the dead. Uh, the Muslim uh, tradition, you, 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 don't, you don't talk about people being raised from the dead. Christianity has as its cornerstone uh, of doctrine not only that Christ came and died and was buried, but that he rose again. This is the Christian doctrine, and it's unique to the Christian message. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen, verse 31, and he was seen of many uh, days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And watch verse 32, and we declare unto you what? Glad tidings. We declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children in that he raised up Jesus again. This is good tidings of great joy. But those tidings would never have been told. Those uh, that joy would never be experienced had it not been for the incarnation. Had it not been for the first coming of Jesus, our Savior. Turn quickly to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Remember, we're talking about the advantage of the incarnation. You see, it is salvation. You see, it is redemption. You see, it is reconciliation. But watch this, watch this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel, the glad tidings of God. Can I submit to you this morning that there would be no glad tidings apart from the first coming of Christ? Can you give me a witness on that? There, there would be no joy uh, in the heart of God's people had not Christ come and paid that debt. For our sins. Listen to how he connects it to the incarnation. He says this good news. This glad tidings of great joy. This gospel of God. Which he had promised to by his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son. Verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord. Which was made of the seed of David. According to the flesh. He was incarnate. Who came in the flesh through the natural lineage of King David. But watch this, verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? How was he declared to be the Son of God? By the resurrection from the dead. This is the unique component of the Christian faith. This is the unique component of the Christian joy. This is the unique component of the Christian gospel. That Jesus not only came, and he not only died, but that he rose again, never to die anymore. All right, one last reference, and we're going to close. And it's found in Romans chapter 3. Most of you are very well acquainted with this, and I hope you are. And I hope you can rejoice in this with me.
today. The great advantage of Christ's incarnation that produces the great joy in your hearts just now is found in Romans chapter 3. Remember verse 23, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? Do you, do, do you honestly, I'm asking you, do you honestly believe that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? There's not one person on this side of Adam's creation that is worthy of anything that God would do in our behalf. We've all sinned. That word sin means to miss the mark. We, every, one, every one of us, we've all sinned and missed the mark. But I'm, I'm so glad God didn't stop there. Verse 24. Carefully, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. Being justified. Do you understand? He didn't say we'll be justified in the future. Being means having been. It's, it's the past perfect tense. Having been justified. Now let's read. And, and what, does, what does justify mean? Declared righteous. Made righteous. Uh, can I say this? Nicholas uh, made acceptable. Made acceptable to God. Declared to be righteous. How? Freely. Freely. Didn't cost you anything. Freely. By His grace. Not your worthiness. Not your merit. Not your good works. But by His grace. Now watch this, watch this. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, the redemption to, buy, to purchase for a price. Question. Is he talking about a future state of redemption? Is he talking about uh, when we all get to heaven? Or in context and grammatically, is he talking about something that was accomplished in the past with ongoing benefits? That's the wording there. That's the Greek construction of this uh, verse. By his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father hath set forth, much could be said here, to be a propitiation, and I realize that's a kind of a, a, a unique word there, but propitiation is simply appeasement, satisfaction. Whom Christ, uh, whom God the Father has set forth to be a satisfaction, an appeasement through faith in his blood to declare, watch this, to declare his righteousness, not yours, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, listen, 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 his righteousness, that he might be just. And the justifier of who? Come on, class. 
the justifier of who? Him that believeth in Jesus. That's the word of God. Somebody says, oh, it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not. Brothers, that's not true. That's not the gospel. It doesn't make any difference if you have faith or fruit in your life. If you ever petted your dog on the head, if you've ever done a good deed for any person in the world, that, that's proof positive that you're a child of God. That's blasphemy. I'm telling you that's antithetical to the gospel. That's not good news at all. But what I'm talking about is good news to those whose hearts have been tendered to the reality of their own sin. To those who know that they're unworthy of eternal life. To, to, those who know that God doesn't owe them anything. God has never owed us anything. To those who feel uh, to be sinful. And, and, and incapable of doing anything worthy of eternal life. I'm telling you this is good news. Because it tells us that it's in Christ that we have acceptance to God. And apart from Him, there is no access. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for any of us. So what is the advantage to His incarnation? Oh, it's salvation, friend. It's redemption. It's uh, acceptance with a holy God. And it is the favor of free and sovereign grace. To me, it's still this morning good tidings of great joy. God bless you. Thank you for your good attention, brother.